Millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome back into the Garden, and this week we have a returning guest. This is Mike Hilliard from the Red Line Podcast, which is an excellent, excellent top-notch geopolitical podcast, and uh, I gave him a few topics to see if uh, he was... Uh, willing to speak on them and the answer was yes he had just done a show on uh, and had done some research into uh, some of these areas so first of all i think we should say hello how are you today michael very good how are you great and the podcast still going strong right very good we're uh, we're getting about 202 million streams a month which is pretty cool um Going from strength to strength, we have another mini series coming out as well. So yeah, it's very busy for us. Um, I know we're doing lots of random topics, so it's a busy year for geopolitics. Yep, and it's a great show, and folks. Uh, so just some random topics that uh, came up recently. There was one: is the aircraft carrier obsolete? <laughs> there was one on uh, cybersecurity, which uh, a little terrifying for me. Um, I don't know why some of the other ones don't terrorize me. So, uh, and I'll never forget forget the show on Suriname where I was really interested in Suriname thereafter, and uh, really never really thought I would be. So, anyway, check that out. It is the Redline Podcast. Obviously, uh, one to two million streams um, on that. So you'll be in plenty of good company and smart company. And uh, if you want a podcast around the world from around the world uh, about real life stuff now. That's a that's my suggestion of the day. And not just because I have Mike on the show as well. It's also not from an American perspective and not all of you are in America. 
That's for sure. The listeners of the show from all over, but probably about two thirds are from America, you know, or, you know, uh, American adjacent country, you know, uh, culturally and politically. Um, and so I think that perspective is good for all of us. Anyway, on to the topics of this. So the big topic is who are the Kurds? Um, and those of us in the U.S. and probably from most of the countries listening here remember the, the two wars in Iraq. I'm sure you remember the more recent one. Um, the Kurds came up a lot, uh, sort of allies, sometimes forgotten, but who are the Kurds? There's, there's Kurdistan, but Kurdistan is not uh, entirely within the borders exclusively of any one country that we know. Um, you know, we, we look at Taiwan and we say Taiwan should be its own country, yet it's not. We look at, you know, Palestine, there's a, you know, a movement for two states. Uh, who are the Kurds? Why don't, you know, wait? You know, why do they sort of get lost in the shuffle or do they? And well, I couldn't think of a better person to ask than Mike Hilliard. So enough of me speaking. I've got a really smart guy here. So Mike, tell us, who are the Kurds? So the Kurds are a very distinct ethnic group. It is the largest ethnic group to not have their own you know, nation state. Uh, and this actually comes stemming from the end of World War One. So effectively, at the very end of the, of the Ottoman Empire in World War One. You know, the British and the French draw new lines on the map, and that's why there's these straight lines that there shouldn't be. You know, if you kind of yeah. if you lay out ethnic maps, uh, there's never a straight line. It's always, you know, unless manually put there. Uh, you know, it always usually falls around rivers and mountains and all sorts of stuff. So the French and the British at the time, you know, not even conspiratorially, it was all on paper saying, look, you know, we'd rather have the states be a little bit blurry because then they're more likely to fight each other and it prevents a pan-Arab state popping up in the Middle East, which was a genuine worry by the, the British and the French at the time. The Kurds kind of were the guys that missed out because where Kurdistan is, sits over the borders of Iran, uh, Iraq, and Turkey, and a little bit of Armenia, but we really don't put them in the conversation that much. Um, so it makes a problem that the Kurds, you know, are a distinct ethnic group. They have their own language, they have their own you know, forms of religion, they have their own beliefs and customs and, and affect the army these days but they are three countries so it makes it really difficult to create a state because if let's say the Kurds were to uh, you know try and make a state they would be you know the Iraqi bit of Kurd so Kurdish Iraq uh, that would mean you know, Iran and Turkey would lose their mind because if they get a foothold somewhere they're going to demand Kurdistan and that would mean taking chunks of Turkey Iran and Iraq so all nations pretty much make sure that that doesn't happen so the, they suffered pretty horribly from the Turkish, to put it very mildly. Um, the Iraqis have kind of come with a bit of a live and let live, and not out of, you know, just out of like, we don't have the strength to go up there and deal with them. But in Iraq, they are usually the most stable part of Iraq, uh, in the north there. Uh, Iran, again, is kind of a, you know, we're not going to worry about it too much, but again, up in the northeast, northwest of Iran, uh, you've got Aziris, you've got Kurds, you've got all sorts of stuff. So... It's a really difficult situation to kind of wrap your head around that there are these groups, this is nationality, this group of people who uh, effectively live, in, you know, live their independent lives because the governments, the central governments in these areas aren't particularly strong, uh, but they have their own customs, religion, you know, passports, whatever they want to do. Uh, but unfortunately, due to geopolitics, they will probably never, they will almost certainly never get a state because it would require the sign-off from. Uh, 
Syria, Iraq, Iran, and uh, and Turkey. And it's why they've actually you know gone into Syria as well to try and liberate and conquer some territory and actually gain some Iraqi Kurdistan back. Uh, particularly, is the you know, they need funding because they don't get a lot of funding from the central governments, so they tend to go into you know Iraq, uh, Syria to try and actually get some funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that be through oil or whether that be through resource extraction. Oh, okay. Do they, um, so w- where, ethnically, where are they from originally? I mean, I'm sure they've been in that area for a while. Are they Turkics? Are they Iranics? Are they Huns? Do, are they Arabs? Do, do we know? Does it even matter anymore? I'd say it, it, it matters very little. They've been there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, then again, when you kind of get into the sort of Turkic or Arabic, you know, it gets really blurry at this point. Mm. Um, you know, they probably would fit closer to the Turkic side. Um, but again, it's it's really blurry and it's really hard. They, they view themselves as a very distinct ethnicity. Okay. Um, and is, is it mostly Islamic or exclusively Islamic or is it mostly Christian or is it is, is that even important? Again, it's kind of, you know, it is Islamic to say, you know, Islamic what it is, but it's also very different. You know, women have a lot more rights. Uh, the Peshmerga, which is the uh, effectively the Kurdish tradition in the army, is you know very heavily full of women. Uh, it's much less. Uh, you know, if Saudi Arabia was in one, the Kurds would probably be in the other. You know, it's very very different to what you'd see in other parts of the area, other parts of the world. Um, but again, it's it's just a very distinct you know version of, of the same things. Yeah, and I imagine like everyone else that there's orthodox and more reformed and then very much you know, <laughs> and like you know and there's divisions within the unifications yeah. and you know and there's you know just like everyone else of course and even speaking with kurds and then and, and being in that area you know there are kurds who are you know on one end of the you know independent scale and there are kurds who are on the other end of the scale you know no culture or no group is a monolith so you know generally you know there's a lot of things the kurds will fight for as a group uh, but yeah, there are also just a lot of yeah, uh, yeah. There's a lot of distinct difference in, in Kurdish politics. Is is there a division like it's uh, it's a Sunni Islamic versus uh, Shia Islamic, or is that not where they're they're Sunni? They're Sunni. Um, so they would probably lean more towards the sort of the Arabs and Turks and all those kind of guys. But again, it's not as uh, fundamentalist as, as other places. So there's not that. If you ask it, if you ask it, Kurd nationalism will come before religion, which is not, you know, not the standard case for a lot of the area. Um, so yeah, it is very much nationalism first. That was really interesting. So, if is there some sort of general consensus among the Kurds as to what the capital of Kurdistan is? Usually, they'll tell you Erbil um, is the capital, uh, but again, it, it gets really, you know, that would be where the most of the administration. Most of, most of what everything is. So, you know, they would say that's capital. I would probably agree with them because that's kind of where if you can do banking, business, whatever it is, you can probably end up in the middle. Is it like a national bank of Kurdistan or is, is it? Yeah, cool. There is. As I said, there, there is, you know, it's almost, in, it's been very independent for a long time. So effectively, Iraq is, if you imagine Iraq, Iraq is three nations spat together. So the majority of Iraq is sort of where the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers are, where Majority of sort of the sort of the Shias that is the is the, the main bit of the population, uh, but that kind of the knobbly top of the bit of Iraq that's full of Kurds and they're very 
the very west of Iraq, where it borders Jordan and whatnot, uh, that is full of, sorry, borders Syria and Jordan. Uh, that's where it's full of uh, Sunnis. It is kind of three nations smashed together, and it was designed at the end of World War One. You know, the very top of it, uh, the bits that uh, the Kurds occupy, effectively, has been very independent because you know, the Iraqi army isn't particularly strong. They're not looking to go up there and start huge fights. The Kurds have their own army. They're backed, and everyone just kind of lets things go. Uh, they do pay lip service. They do send representatives. They do work with the central government in Baghdad. Uh, but, you know, the local rules would probably supersede anything that was coming out of Baghdad. Who backs them? Who's their biggest backers? Usually the United States. Uh, the United States has us- usually been very supportive of the Kurds uh, because the Kurds have always been the tip of the spear. So whenever we need to get anything done in the region, the United States will support them and they will usually get it done for us. And they've been fantastic allies in Washington for a very, very long time. The trouble is, though, that you know, they've lost a bit of faith in us after, uh, after we abandoned some of their positions later on uh, during the Trump administration. Yeah, well, well sort of a, a slow-motion bay of pigs probably going back even uh, you know, yeah. before the Trump administration, uh, even not to, yeah. uh, not to let him off the hook either. Um, hmm. but, uh, there, um, so that's gotta be a little bit touchy, maybe more than a little bit with, you know, countries that we're purportedly friendly with Turkey, which, you know, is in NATO and it, and it still is even today. Uh, they did their little shakedown for Finland and Sweden, but the, they have, you know, they, it was sort of predicted. In fact, even I predicted, I think I tweeted, don't worry they, they just want something and they'll, they'll come along and yeah. sure enough, a month later. Uh, and if I could see it, uh, I'm sure, you know, actual followers of the area uh, do that as well. Um, Never let a good crisis go to waste. There you go. There you go. That's exactly right. Um, Iraq, I, I mean, I guess they're supposed to be an ally, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But that's got to be a little dicey as long as we don't push too hard. But I'm sure that's not great for the Kurds. Uh Syria, I'm sure we don't care about at the moment. You know, at least we're not concerned about what the Syrian government feels at the moment. Um, but at some point, we might. Um, I mean, that's got to be a really delicate dance. I'm sure it's extremely frustrating for the Kurds. It is. And that's it's the trouble that, you know, most Kurds are very aware of the situation they're playing here. That, you know, if they were to kind of go to the United States and say, put up or shut up that the United States would probably not help them uh, because, frankly, Turkey is, is far more important geopolitically than the Kurds are to the United States. Uh, just, you know, the largest base in the Middle East is in Turkey. They own the Bosphorus Strait. It's a very large economy, uh, and it is the gateway into Europe. Uh, so Europe is very, very keen to make sure Turkey doesn't go the other way. Uh, it's also quite a large military, and Turkey is getting more interventionist in the Middle East, pretty mildly. Uh, when it comes to Iraq, we would love to see a stabilized and reasonable Iraq. Uh, obviously, we'll go into that a bit later. Uh, when it comes to Syria, Iraq, you know, the U.S. is in a really weird and interesting position that you know the war is now kind of tied down to a six-way stalemate. You know, you've got the majority of the country under uh, under Assad, and he's really has taken the majority of the country back. Uh, you've got the what was the U.S.-backed areas, the Syrian Democratic Forces, usually is where you refer to them. Uh, but they've been kind of adopted, you know, co-opted by very, very radical groups. So no one kind of wants to deal with it anymore because they would probably be worse than Assad. Well, not really, but, you, you know, going down. It depends on all your ideologies. 
Turkey is also inside Syria at the moment. Obviously, they've got interest to make sure that there is a bit of a buffer between the chaos and, and the south, southern bits of Turkey. Uh, obviously, the Golan Heights are still occupied by Israel. It's a whole other kettle of fish. Uh, uh, and then you've got the Kurds, who are effectively, con- who are effectively occupying the northeast. Uh, and then you've also got spatterings of ISIS through the place. So it is, you know, the US is in a position where, okay, well, we can't deal with effectively the Syria, the democratic forces anymore because that's just not great. Uh, the Kurds, well, we can't deal with them because, you know, we can, we can, we do lots of work with them, but we can't endorse them to have a state because that would, you know, absolutely catalyze any chance of relationships with, you know, Iraq, Syria, uh, Iran, or Turkey. Uh, we also can't really, you know, deal with ISIS for obvious reasons. Uh, so now they're stuck with, okay, what do we do about Syria? Because if, you know, they, if they don't do anything, they keep the sanctions on, they really keep this war perpetuating going. It does make, it just, you know, it makes things very difficult for Syrians on the ground to actually get their lives back and build a stable, you know, any sort of stable country. Uh, but if they do, they actually let the money flow back in. That's effectively just admitting to everyone going, look, that's fine, we'll keep Assad in place. Um, and that would mean that a US president has to shake Assad's hand at some point at the UN, which is mm. not a great position to be for right. a president. Um, but leaving it getting worse and worse only increases the chance of radicalization popping up. Uh, because the more destabilized a country is, the more likely one is radical groups, you know, forming, adopting, and growing from that area. So it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't with Syria. Right. Yeah, it seems like it's a very uh, rock and a hard place kind of thing. Hmm. Um, around how many people are in Kurdistan? Oh, so I wouldn't know off the top of my head. And again, it gets really, really messy because you get into this. Right. What is Kurdistan? Uh, what is Kurdistan? You also get into this, like, are you a Kurd? You know, are you a are you an Iraqi or a Kurdi, Kurdistani, if you're born in that area? It's, it's yeah, it's really messy. Um, yeah, I wouldn't know if top of my head, but it's big enough to be a thing. Big enough to be a thing. Okay. Uh, so that would be, you know, at least a couple million. No, at least. Okay. It'd be, it'd be, so, it'd be somewhere around the 10, 12 million, but don't call me that. Obviously, I'm very ignorant on the subject, and I imagine that a lot of people are. Is it possible that, that there's not more worldwide attention, not more of an outpour, not more support for this because the Kurds are just too darn pragmatic? Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's quite easy for, you know, the Kurds have done some really clever things to get in the national attention. So Kurdistan is probably the safest part of Iraq at certain times of the year. Uh, and they're very welcoming for film crews. And they're very welcoming for journalists to come in. They're very, very polite to the journalists when they get there, um, which makes it really easy for sort of like, reporters to go in and actually talk about their plight. They're very media friendly. They're very media trained. Um, they've been very uh, helpful to the US. They're willing to fight. They've got lots of women's rights in comparable to the region. So yeah, from a, from a, a very uh, Western perspective, then yeah, they, they tick a lot of boxes. Um, but yeah, then it gets into the geopolitics of it, which makes it much more complicated. But if you just sort of, if you go to a man on the street and say, look, you know, there's this group in the Middle East, there's a lot of them, they deserve their own country, they're, you know, got more women's rights than their neighbors do, they're, you know, pro-US, they fought for democracy, they have, you know, votes, rah, 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 rah. You know, it's a lot of boxes that could be ticked. Uh, to let, you know, from a very basic perspective, it makes, you know, it, it, it makes sense. So it occurs to me after, with that answer, that, you know, Okay, they heard your name, they heard you from the Red Line podcast, but I shouldn't assume that they've listened to your podcast, and I shouldn't assume that they listened to the prior episode, which I think I cleverly entitled The Red Line. Um, 
so I'm not sure we're going to entitle this one I'm between who's the Kurds and the Redder line, um, but maybe just just for those folks to, to know who you are, why don't you tell a little bit about your background in the middle of the show, <laughs> as opposed to the beginning. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm a, I've been a conflict journalist for many years, reporting from war zones across the world. Uh, I've been uh, writing government policy as well as defense papers for a long time as well, uh, ghostwriting for other people on top of that. Uh, but yeah, my main job was going in and conflict reporting from mostly the Middle East and uh, and the former Soviet countries. So I spent a lot of time in, you know, if there's cheap vodka and cheap bullets, I probably unfortunately spent a bit of time there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you go. Um, that's a that, that's a business card right there. That's a slogan. You should trademark that. And you are your base of operations. Are you're in Australia, right? I am in Australia, so it's very early in the morning for me. Um, but yeah, I obviously. You know, base myself here, but fly out to wherever I need to go. So it's a, you know, it's a very odd, odd way of doing things. So every every job I go to means there's a, a twelve hour flight uh, to get started. <laughs> Are you still traveling around quite a bit for the for the show? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, obviously, a less at the moment. Uh, I just had a child, so I'm kind of here ah. for a little bit to, before I get back on the road and do stuff uh, again. But yeah, it's been. Uh, I'm also getting a bit older. I'm not as as keen to go get shot at. <laughs> All right, there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that makes sense. All right, but uh, you know, I'm 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 a bit older than that. So, uh, <laughs> but okay. So, which is tougher, being a, a war correspondent or having an infant? What shocked me about having an infant is the how quickly my bar of how much vomit I have on me and just find whatever would steal with it lowered so quickly. I did not expect that to happen. Um, yeah, I think I get yelled at a lot less as a warzone correspondent. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's been interesting. But yeah, it's it's I, it's uh, so much laundry. I think I don't. I was never prepared for how much laundry comes out of having an infant. Yeah, uh, well, uh, it's been a while for me, but ha uh-huh. ha, I, I feel that's <laughs> I feel that's always appropriate. Uh, everyone, everyone goes, oh, you should have a kid. It's the best thing you'll ever do. It's lovely, great. You should really do it. And the moment you announce, like, yeah, I'm having a kid, like, ha suck it. Uh, and now you're in the club. You're, you're ruined now. So, yeah, I'm experiencing that first hand at the moment. That's right. It also seems terribly horrible for someone to say, hey, what were you doing? Oh, I, I was just, you know, covering the war in Sudan for a while, and I saw terrible things, and then they go, ha-ha, nah, that, 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 that's not, but, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, I got two hours of sleep last night, the baby's crying, there's nothing wrong with him or her, I got shit all over me. It's okay, it's still okay to go, ha-ha, there. It's, it just, just is. It's, 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 uni- it's universal. Uh, and if it's not, what are you going to do? Beat me up from, uh, from uh, the other side of the world? Not yet. Send you a strongly worded email with caps lock all way. Oh no 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 not that the Kovevi or Kovevi or whatever that word was. Okay, well enough about that. Um, all right, so back back to the Kurds. So you said they have their own military. Is I mean, and it's pretty strong. So uh, I, I guess the United States is their biggest backer. Who would be their? Uh, I mean, would I be right to guess that they'd have friends in the UK and France and maybe even Israel? Yeah, they have Israel, not as much. But they do have lots of backing from the United States. So they don't. They don't touch the Israeli issue. They're 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 yeah. They kind of, like the Israelis are. You know, they'll give them some support and they'll help them. With, you know, if the if they're fighting someone Israel doesn't like, yeah, they'll they'll throw Israel will throw money and guns at it. But generally, Israel right now is doing quite good work with Turkey, as in they're trying to get a good sort of relationship going between Ankara and um, and Jerusalem now. So they're not really willing to throw their lot fully in with with the Kurds, but they have been supportive at times. You know, when it comes to their weapons, you know, some of them are using 
old Russian weapons that the U.S. purchased or surplus because there's just so many Russian weapons laying around still. Uh, some of them are U.S. weapons. Others are, you know, just money and supplies. You know, a lot of it is also self-funded. They are sitting on some oil fields and they do sell the oil. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, it's, you know, the U.S. will back them, but it really is a, they're backed at times when they're fighting someone that the bigger power wants. So when they're fighting against ISIS, yeah, the U.S. just threw buckets of money at them. Uh, when they're fighting against, you know, Turkey, the U.S. won't you know, pretend to not know them. So it's it really is, you know, the, their funding relies on how, if they are the tip of the spear or not. So there's sort of an unintentional golden horde type of thing. Kind of, yeah. If we're getting into sort of like 15th century politics, then yeah. So of course I am. It's, I'm all yeah. over the place. You know that. Well, of course, um, yeah. yeah. It's a, mm-hmm. not a bad analogy. It's effectively, you know, the U.S. will fund them to strike where they need to strike. And it, you know, it saves the, because the U.S. can't put boots on the ground for some things. Uh, whereas the Kurds will more than happily go into that. But the U.S. support ends and ends at, you know, way before the, the Kurds would want it to be. Right. Um, are they on water? Are they, like, what bodies of water are they? I mean, are they, does the Tigris and Euphrates go well, up there? They've got some rivers on the Tigris and Euphrates you to end up in that area. Uh, but, you know, they're landlocked, which makes things really difficult because yeah. the customs porters are, where do you put them? Effectively, once you in, when you enter Kurdistan, you're entering on like checkpoints that the Kurdish will say this is a Kurdish checkpoint, but it gets really murky on what actually is that checkpoint. It's effectively in the middle of you know Iraq, right? And when you go, and when yeah, you're trying to sell have, your petroleum, um, you generally need to use a pipeline and ships. Yeah, so they'll, they'll use some of the so, so some of the infrastructure that's already in Iraq or in. Uh, in Turkey, or you know, they'll use that infrastructure and sell it, and they'll obviously have to pay a fee to the local the local distributor to get get it out of the ground. But it still ends up with some of that money in back in the Kurds' pockets. Okay, so it's a there's a it's it's got a margin, but the, they may pay a higher tax than say you know Iraq does exporting its own fuel and things like that. You know things like that. Okay, hmm. it's that that stuff. So they're it's funny you said they have a lot of Russian weapons. It seems like the only place there aren't a lot of Russian weapons right now are with the Russian army. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's, yeah. My my main source on that is, is uh, I think you know him, Chris from uh, the Eastern border podcast. I think you, you two are acquainted. I know Chris very well. He's a a great guy. Yeah, he is. So, I mean, that's why, that's why he's from Latvia. So you guys should check out the Eastern border. He's been on this show too. Uh, though we, we didn't talk about much serious. We, 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 well, serious to me. I mean, nothing surprises me about that at all. (laughs) Well, I mean, I, I, I solicited him for that. I said, you, you know, you do want to talk about sort of mythology and legends and, and, you know, vampires and Baba Yaga and things like that. And he's like, I mean, that's usually what Garden of Doom is. I mean, we, we expand, the, you know, the, I would say the garden, the, the roots are deep and the branches go afar. And, you know, so we cover uh, all sorts of things. But, you know, the, 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 this is, you know, almost uniquely uh, firmly based in terra firma right right here, right now. You know, that, uh, but I don't care. It's my show I do it. You know, that, 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 like when you did your aircraft carrier show, you're like, I don't know if this is really what I do, but why not? And it was great, by the way. It was a great show. Mm-hmm. Very, right. long, very long way of saying like, yes, but yeah, no. Like, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah. 
well, I mean, long ways of saying things is, is sort of my milieu and you can't have it. It's mine. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, because uh, whatever mass dreams you have, I have one more. So that, as, as far as you know, anyway. So if you have two million, I have uh, two million one net cents. It's not, it's not even true. But I'm sure your way is better. But uh, yeah, no, but uh, we try to be a little bit less serious here, obviously. Um, all right. Let's move off the Kurds for the moment. And I wasn't necessarily going to go in this order, but because they are neighbors, if not share some of the space on the Venn diagram, what's the state of Iraq now? I mean, obviously the United States went into two wars, quick succession. There's discussion, war of necessity, war of choice, Afghanistan versus Iraq. Uh, victory was sort of oddly defined, if at all, for, for both in different ways, I suppose, but in both cases, the United States tried to engage in sort of nation building, I'd say in Afghanistan, if their goal was to weaken Al-Qaeda, success, if it was to weaken the Taliban, temporary, if failure, and if it was for nation state building, complete and abject failure, at least as of now, maybe in 30 years, it'll look different, I doubt it. Iraq, Felt like, I mean, obviously the, the, the infrastructure of Iraq and the, the Hussein government fell almost immediately and the, by that token success, but the nation building seemed every bit as difficult uh, as Afghanistan. And then sort of there were elections and there's flare-ups and then there was ISIS and it seemed stable. And then when we first talked, there was, there was, like, a, there was like some civil unrest in Iraq uh, and like everybody was worried for a moment, and, but then it turned like it was just a flare-up. So what is going, is, is Iraq actually going to be looked at as a success or close enough to a success, or is it just that nobody's looking? It's really difficult to sort of uh, figure out if Iraq is a success or not. So if you look at sort of some metrics, yes, other metrics, no. So right now, particularly, Iraq is in a really odd place because it's in political turmoil and chaos. So to kind of we're going to condense a lot of history and oversimplify a lot of things here. Sure. But, you know, the majority of Iraqis are, you know, Shias, and they probably be closer to Iraq than they would be to anyone else. Oh, sorry, closer to Iran than they would be anyone else. Um, obviously, once when they're under Saddam, very different story, but now that the, you know, majority of Shias are back, uh, you'd expect them to take government. Now, the trouble we also had was when the, you know, and we've had even the generals who were in charge at that point, on the red line, they admit pretty freely that yeah, that was a mistake. When they came in, they said everyone who's Ba'athist should be removed from power. No questions, no ifs, no ands, no buts. Uh, what that did, though, is got rid of anyone who knew how to use Microsoft Excel. Uh, because much like being a communist in, in, sort of in the late Soviet Union or you know being a communist in China, you know, kind of need to just have, have that box ticked if you want to get anywhere in local government. So it meant that all of your generals, soldiers, you know, guys who run dams, even the accountants all just disappeared from the country overnight. So it was a bit chaotic there, and that's kind of where ISIS comes in, because all these guys went, well, I'm never going to get a job in Iraq. And ISIS went, well, we'll give you a job. <laughs> and that caused that bit of chaos. So ISIS settles down. We start to see Iraq get somewhat stabilized, and it gets stabilized because it's a sheer government, and it's very, very tied in with, uh, with Iran. So Iranian news stations play all the time. Iran will fund certain areas. There's lots of trade deals between the two. Iran is very, very uh, invested into Iraq. And the United States kind of looks at that and goes, well, I don't like it. 
but it's at least a bit more stable than Afghanistan. So right. I'm willing to, you know, you know, is it worth opening that can of worms again? Is probably the conversation happening in Washington. Now, that brings us to sort of 2021, where they're having parliamentary elections. And unlike the United States or other two-party countries, there's quite a lot of parties in the, in the Iraqi you know, uh, parliament, effectively. They enter this guy called uh, Muhammad al-Sabir, um, who effectively is, is Shia, but he's also, you know, he's kind of, he's very populist. He's kind of a, I hate using the sort of like the Trump of Iraq, but he's, he's down that road of kind of like anti-establishment, you know, I don't want any U.S. influence, I don't want any Iranian influence, but he's very radical with some of his religious beliefs uh, and nationalist beliefs as well. He he got the biggest share of the vote, uh, but no party effectively did. You know, it was in, everyone got like 20, mostly 20% or 10% or 5% spatterings of different parties. And to get a, you know, to actually elect a prime minister and leader of Iraq, uh, you need two-thirds of the parliament to say, yep, I agree, you form coalitions. It's closer to the German system than the American. So no one's happy with this because no one wants to side with him. Everyone looks at him as a, as a fringe, you know, radical. Uh, and he decides to storm the parliament, which seems to be the, the in-fashion thing to do at the moment. Uh, then he calls the supporters back and parliament tries to meet again and he storms it again uh, and they pull them back. The trouble we have now is, you know, he doesn't actually own that much, you know, political capital. Mm. The election we're talking about in 2021 had an incredibly low turnout. We're talking, uh, you know, 43, 42% of people actually came out to that election. And out of those, 10% of them voted for Sadia. It just happened to be that, you know, his votes are very concentrated. So Well, well they got that from America, so we don't vote, so they don't vote, so good. Yeah, so you know, Sadia, the people who out of the people who went to the polls and voted for Sadia is five percent of the population, right. maybe less. But he is right now holding up the entire process, and this these elections happened in twenty twenty one, that no one can effectively get two thirds of a, a government in because he, he has just enough that him and a couple of other real radicals can effectively stop a two thirds majority happening. So we're at this point where no one wants to work with him because he's you know, and he's taking this time to step back with the Iraqi government and try and demand that he be made prime minister, even though he doesn't have majority support. Uh, and this is the trouble that the Iraq, this is the way the Iraqi system is. They, they usually should be compromised, but he owns just enough for that based on his 5% of the population uh, to be able to do this. So now Iraq has been in this, dead, this deadlock for effectively almost a year now with just, you know, they can't get a prime minister. They can't really get anything going. It's drying everything down to a, a, just a, uh, absolute, you know, minutia of politics because nothing can get done, which is going to make people lose faith in the government. And the moment you lose faith in the government is when you start turning to other ideologies. And so it's a really, it's a tough one because do you intervene? Do you not intervene? Do you go, hey, this guy has five percent of the population voting for him? Why are we paying attention? Or do you go, look, he has the largest amount of, you know, uh, seats in parliament of anyone else, so we should be paying attention to it. So what I'm going to keep, I'm hearing, sort of to steal the analogy of your namesake of the show anyway, is that we're close to maybe there's a silver lining in that it hasn't exploded or imploded into a, a civil war and it still seems to be a political issue that where there's a cap on and you have a semi-functional state. But at some point, maybe there's a red line, which I assume that's the base's name. The red line is a line you're not supposed to cross. 
until you know without something going kapow. Um, so, is it more silver lining or is it more your ballywick of red line? It's getting towards red line. It's it's you know a real problem for people because people are losing faith in the central government, and we're getting to a point where you know because the central government will actually start appointing things and start you know actually making policy and nothing can get done, you end up with a problem that you know. Yeah, nations like Kyrgyzstan had recently, you know, back in 25, 2005, 2010. Now we're talking about Kyrgyzstan, because, which is a Central Asian Central, country. Central Asia. yeah. well, because there's a weak centralized government that nothing gets done, so people tend to work with real local leadership, and local leadership is much easier and much more corrupt. It's much easier to be bribed. Mm-hmm. So you end up with the, everyone just kind of going, okay, well, nothing's going to get done from Baghdad. We'll just bribe the local cop and do it anyway. And that once you get down that road, you end up with just chaos. And again, Iraq is already dealing with huge levels of corruption. Uh, we're talking 23rd or 24th most corrupt country in the entire world. You know, it's not great. It's bad. Yeah. So effectively, that's, that's the trouble we have. The longer we leave this, the less faith the people will have in the centralized government. They will just turn back to bribing the local police chief to get anything done. Uh, but to overrule this and say, yep, uh, no, we you know invalidate these votes and just go for it again breaks what democracy is supposed to be yeah, uh, and again and we put 130,000 troops in there US plus all the contractors and other nations as well we're not about to do that again no and that's the trouble you know to go back into these countries is political suicide you know if, right. if Biden wants to decide yep let's go make sure Iraq is fine good God the polls would just be ballistic on that. Uh, and not to know, be a dove, but it's probably not that great an idea. Period. It's, it's, it's maybe it's not a poli- good policy idea. It's maybe it, it's certainly not necessary. I mean, you've tried it once before. You didn't exactly enjoy a great amount of, of political success with it. So I mean, you, you know, you're you're squandering lives and political capital on an international scale. You know, asking allies to contribute and you know their tre- treasure and and uh, and people. Well, also, who are we support? You know, that's the truth. If we go and support sort of some of the more mainstream parties and, you know, the U.S. would deploy, you know, a bunch of troops in there, deploy another 150,000 troops, quickly get rid of Al-Sadr's people and plop in one of the sort of more mainstream parties into Iraq. Mm-hmm. Great. Now you've just completely killed any any sort of uh, genuine, you know, love of that party because everyone's going, oh, it's just a U.S. party. And I think everyone probably doesn't want, you know, the U.S. to be so overt about just plonking their person in. Uh, and again, whatever the U.S. is going to do in there, Iran is probably going to do more because this this is Iran's direct center of influence. Um, and it's going to be very hard. Again, there's a lot of people who have very bad taste in their mouth from the U.S. occupation. Uh, and they will turn to the Iranians because the Iranians are doing a lot more trade. They're doing a lot more business. They've got a lot more, you know, on the ground support. It's things like the Iranians doing a lot, like funding a lot of local news stations, which is something the U.S. really doesn't do in that area right. that well. Um, so it's... Yeah, U.S. invasion is probably off the table, but Good. <laughs> you know, now we just keep, now we just keep watching Iraq effectively continue to spiral, and it's effectively the democratic system that's gone there. So it is it is spiraling, uh, which is not a great thing. It it sounds I mean, and you know, you didn't say it, or maybe you were saying it politely, but the the, the U.S. And, and not just the U.S. but has historically sort of been bad at picking winners, uh, at least long term. In other countries, sort of, they don't really read the the room necessarily, uh, and sometimes it's you know books that aren't even written in a, in a language or an order. Um, 
the only times I think that the U.S. has really had success picking winners is in organized crime. Uh, you know, like sort of like it's when you were talking, it sort of seemed like a, I was thinking, yeah, they went to war with Escobar. That didn't turn out so too too well, but they decided that the Cali cartel was better and could be civilized. Whether or not Escobar could have done the same thing, I don't know. It just wasn't it wasn't on the table, uh, and and you know probably have done the same with other organized crime. Sometimes the U.S. do pick really good winners. So the U.S. were, for instance, very openly supportive of the of the anti-communists in Italy in 1950. Mm-hmm. They were very openly supportive of Ataturk uh, in Turkey. You know, they've been you know very supportive of the sort of the Greek, the anti-communist Greek government. Uh, they helped very much the Indonesian government come into power. They were very supportive of certain Philippine re- regimes. You know, the U.S. have had a lot of winners, but in recent times, yeah, the uh, picking the government in Iraq. And again, it just came because they knocked out everyone who was a Ba'athist, which was just such a bad idea, and everyone saw that coming. Uh, when it comes to Afghanistan, you can kind of argue that by sort of even 03, that game was lost. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they they could have won it in six weeks, but they didn't, and because of it, there was nothing they could do. You know, it, without throwing so much blood and treasure at it, it was just not worth it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, again, it's, it's, it's a complicated one. The US do quite often pick winners, uh, they do supporting certain carriers. Uh, I think anyone listening from Central America will be very aware of the U.S. influence in them. Um, but yeah, when it comes to Iraq, it was just poor decision making. It was mostly made in political. Uh, it was a almost a political messaging to go look. We got rid of the entire Ba'athist party. It was like removing the Nazis. Right. When you know, even you know, and I hate to talk about you know down that road of the sort of Germany because everyone does. Uh, but even the, the Americans when they came in and took over sort of. German-occupied territory, They yes, they got rid of the, the Nazis, um, but things like local burgermeisters and mayors and fires and chiefs, unless they were pretty openly, you know, waving the, 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 the flag, they were allowed to stay because they went, well, you know, we don't want to block a whole government in. We'd love just to put the little caps and put another capstone on, um, particularly when it came to little local, local law enforcement. Right. So it made Get rid of the zealots. much easier. But yeah. you, but you keep the apparatchiks, the the, the, the functionaries, yeah. the bureauc- the bureaucrats. Yes, you keep the bureaucrats in, and that's you know, if you look at countries that have been successfully kind of like regime changed, or occupied, or changed, mostly it happens because you take off the capstone and you leave the, the rest of it there, and you tell sort of the majority of your military and majority of you know the oligarchs and you know your guys that actually know how to use Microsoft Excel saying, look, you know, we'll leave you to it. Don't commit any crimes anymore. You know, we're going to leave you to it, but keep this particular state running the way it should. Um, that's generally how you have an easier occupation. Otherwise, you're going to have to have troops to patrolling every street there is. Right. You know, that's the same reason the British could conquer the entire British Raj, which is what India, Pakistan, Burma, uh, and Bangladesh, uh, and with what three thousand troops, it really wasn't that much um, because of they would, you know effectively let the Maha, they, they would rule the Maharajas and the Maharajas would rule the people under them. You know, the U.S. would go for a much more capstone system in Iraq. They probably would have had a much better time, but they didn't. They wanted to get rid of the capstone and two-thirds of the pyramid. Gotcha. And when you do that, you've got to build the pyramid from scratch again. And the U.S. weren't that interested in doing that. Understood. Well, thank you for reminding me of the, the, the that our country, or my country, uh, hasn't had that terrible a record, but we are, we do pay a lot of attention to the failures. and and. You know, I guess you 
you hear a lot more about failures than you hear about successes, but, uh, hmm. you know, but yeah, anyway, so be it. Um, all right. So Iraq, not looking so good. Now I wasn't trying to help George W come out of this better necessarily, but I mean, I think I've tried as much as anyone. So W it's not over, you know, for you, your, your legacy. Um, but uh, it's not looking so good right now, but you know, maybe in another, but I, I I always said that the war in Iraq shouldn't be judged right now. It, 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 it'll be judged in 50 years, but we're getting to that midpoint. Uh, so, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see. Afghanistan, I think, is a different story that, uh, like you said, in 03, you, you, you know, you, you, you know, we recently ripped the Band-Aid off again. We, the United States, recently ripped the Band-Aid off, probably in a horrible, horrible way um, and probably could have been done better. But three presidents that were getting out of Iraq. Uh, out of Afghanistan, so, one did. This is a really interesting thing about Afghanistan because I was always, you know, tied in with um, uh, State Department and a few other people. We we're getting the sort of live, um, you know, feedback of what was going on in inside Afghanistan. Effectively, Trump had made a deal with them, saying, "Yeah, we'll get out, you know, next year," which is fine. You know, everyone, it should have been done. Um, Obama tried to do it and got told, "Look, you do this, you know, it's going to be political suicide. Yeah, it's going to, you know." You know, the best analogy I've ever sort of seen about Iraq is if you had an earthquake and a plate fell and clonked against the glass door, you know, so you open that cabinet, the plate falls and smashes. You leave it sitting there, technically it's still not smashed. But the moment you actually open it, it smashes. Whoever left, it was going to be chaos. That's just, it's the way it was. When it came to, you know, effectively August in August of 2021, uh, the only bits Left in left in U.S. control were Kabul, and there was very little outside of that. Even when I was in Uzbekistan next door, dealing with sort of Afghan arms dealers, you know, they were saying they weren't even buying ammunition anymore because they just had so much from captured U.S. supplies. Because the, the U.S. had announced they're leaving, mm-hmm. they're like, yep, we're not going to be here forever, and the Afghans took on the phrase of, "Oh, you're the watches, but we have the time." You know, and if you're an A soldier, you knew that the thing keeping you, you know backed in is going to disappear at some time. And it was things like the US, you know, training the ANA how to use helicopters, but not giving them any training on how to maintain or repair helicopters. Right. Because they always imagined the US would be there to do it, which is, yeah. Then we kind of, we get to the taking of Kabul and effectively the, the Taliban had actually been fairly reasonable to that point. You know, I'm going to use that giant air quotes there because um, we're comparing them to this sort of the, the you know, 2001 Taliban. So the Taliban sort of camp at the edge of the city and there's this pretty orderly evacuation going on very slowly over, you know, a couple of flights here again. But then Twitter actually kicks off and there's reports of Taliban taking parts of the city and chaos just breaks out throughout Kabul and there's rioting and there's looting and chaos. And then Biden has a really, really tough choice because he either goes, A, let the rioting happen and it'll be nuts. Or B, let the Taliban come in three months before they probably should have come in and immediately take over policing and quell the riots. Uh, so you can actually have some sort of stabilized government, which is what happened. And the Taliban take over police and traffic management and all that kind of stuff immediately. Uh, and as much as it's looked chaotic, you know, it was very, you know, if the, if the uh, Taliban really wanted to cause chaos, they would have gone after, you know, the diplomatic areas of the green zone, which they didn't. They, you know, even helped escort some of those, uh, embassy staff to the airport. They had no mm. problems because they knew, you know, 
as the old saying goes, if you have a tiger running out your front door, why would you grab its tail? Right. So they came in, they took over policing, they took over, you know, and friends of mine who were on the ground in Kabul were sending me, you know, live footage of like this end of the airport where the US war was just chaos. It was just people trying to desperately get on flights and all that kind of stuff. And they turn around and it's just dudes selling Pringles right here. That is the normal <laughs> terminal and everything's perfectly fine. Um, because again, they don't, why would they want to kill a bunch of US soldiers on the way out? It just, it's, it's asking for trouble. Right. But again, it's you know it was a bit of a it was it was a terrible situation because it was it effectively was spit out the timeline by three months. It was really interesting. We were all working at that time, helping get assets out and helping get people out of the country and, and all this sort of stuff, and putting all this work to sort of get people across the border into other countries and doing work. And then like two weeks later, we're like, oh, he just could have got a commercial flight out. I'm like <laughs> he could have just he could have just gone to you know bloody web traveler and just booked a ticket <laughs> so some things have returned to some sort of stability but there is but there's but i guess there's truth in that there's you know problems for women especially there's probably uh recriminations and problems for people who helped the united states and the u.s military said no we didn't leave any functional equipment behind not not so much <laughs> they did um they left a lot behind but the u.s has done that in every every conflict for most occupations the U.S. done, whether it be Yugoslavia or Africa, you know, it's cheaper to just buy new equipment and get the stuff they have home. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that was in A&A stockpiles. And again, if you're the A&A, you know the U.S. are leaving at some point and you get attacked by a bunch of Taliban and they say, hey, uh, walk away and we'll not kill you or just, you know, or fight to the death. They're not going to really be as keen to fight to the death for not, you're a government that's probably going to be toppled in a couple of months anyway. Right. And again, we just we watched the the entire country just disappear over a couple of years. You know, when it comes to the government right now, there's, they're kind of stuck in this weird dichotomy of you have half the government who will say, you know, we fought this war for 20 years to bring our own brand of religious, you know, uh, governance. We should do it. We fought for this. This is what we want to do. And the other half of your government's going to go, yeah, but we're broke. You know, mm-hmm. we are very reliant on foreign aid still. Uh, you know, the budgets they're talking about, national budgets are 500 million, which is like, it's a water park. Right. <laughs> it's, not that, it's very, very cheap. Yeah. Um, you know, we need to go look to outside investors to get money. And if we look like a rambling, uh, ragtag bunch of, you know, people, we're going to not end up getting any foreign investment. So we desperately want to appear as this reasonable government that's in place and we can do work. And that's the two sides of the government. You know, it's, it's a really weird sort of dichotomy that they really do need to appear good you know, so China's or India's or all these other countries will actually invest uh, you know on this basis of look you know we have all these rare earths we have all these minerals we have this great real estate we have pipelines you can build you know just invest in Afghanistan you'll be cheapest chips and you'll get lots of investment back for the US there's also this same dichotomy happening where you've got one half of the government saying you know it's the Taliban it's the guys we fought against for 20 years why would we give them any money? Why should we support them? You know, it's things like the FBI still having the, the Taliban Secretary of State on their most wanted list uh, for what, a $10 million reward or something, to which I'd love to claim it because he's right there. Um, <laughs> worst where's Wally ever. Uh, but at the other side, you go, you have the, you know, the diplomats in the US say, look, sir, you know, if we let the Taliban fall, it'll be ISIS who takes over because ISIS-K is gaining, gaining ground in the West. They are way worse than the Taliban. They are a hundred times more zealous. They are not even looking to form any sort of relationship with any government. They will just kill everyone. 
you know, it's not great, it's but it's way better than the alternative. And you end up in this weird position, you know, particularly Afghanistan at the moment, where the shops are actually full of food. You know, the stores are completely chock a block with stuff, but people can't buy it because they can't access the banking system, so they can't take out money because U.S. sanctions are still on Afghan banks. So you you have these shopkeepers who will be like, I want to sell you this bread, this bread, but people go, well, like the ATM won't give me any money, so I can't do anything. Um, you know, it's really difficult because again, I see both sides. You know, I make it makes sense to not work with the Taliban because they're not, you know, as palatable a government as we'd like to work with. Uh, and the other half of me says, look, we work with Saudi Arabia. They're not particularly palatable either. Um, and to let Taliban collapse would just invite extremist groups or invite more fracturing in the country. And again, if Afghanistan fractures, it causes problems in Central Asia, Pakistan, Iran. You know, it, it spirals from there. So it's a really, it's a tough decision for everyone. Uh, and neither side is really willing to pull the trigger on it. Is like it, everyone, everyone in Afghanistan desk is just exhausted. Is it beyond the political decision at this point? Because it seems to me once you took the military out, the very few people in the United States anyway are going to care whether or not the sanctions are lifted on Afghanistan. I mean, it was the, it was the soldiers on the ground that, that people here cared about. So is there something is there something that I'm missing that's more than optics? Is there something particularly important on keeping the the economic keys locked? Or is it just being stubborn? It's like, we lost, we left, we but we don't want to admit it. Or is there something important that's that's occurring? So there's there's two ways. So some people in the US will say, look, the more we can you know put the hold on the Taliban, they're more likely to give up on, on that other half of the government, the very religious, very zealous half of the government, and pivot more to the sort of like international trade friendly, you know, let's form a state kind of end. You know, if there's more pressure put on, maybe they will give up on that side. It's pretty dubious, though. What is more likely is the fact that, you know, if Biden was to do it, Fox News would lose their minds. Uh, and we have a midterm coming up. And Biden will have, you know, people in his ear saying, Sir, I know it's the right thing to do. I know we probably should do it. But, you know, if you do this, that's the cycle. You know, we've lost six months of politics. You know, any hope you have of getting inflation bills or environmental bills or healthcare or any of these reforms out the drain. So you've given up your entire making, you know, 300 million people in the U.S. better off uh, for the sake of Afghanistan. And you'll probably go, yeah, okay, we'll keep that can down the road. Uh, and that's a real trouble that, you know, <coughs> that it'll be Sorry, an audience. nightmare. That's right. Um, and we don't know how it'll play out in the midterms. So, yeah, it's, it's a combination of both. So he said, uh, I ripped one bandit, when bandaid off it, you know, I took the shot on the jaw politically for this. Somebody else can take the shot on the jaw for it. Or is it possible that, you know, let's just say there isn't a red wave in the U.S., which for those of you internationally don't follow U.S. politics means that the Republicans take over the House and or the Senate, probably both. Uh, wave usually means both. Um, if that doesn't happen, which was widely suspected a few months ago, right now as we record this in early September 2022, it, it's a little bit more in flux. But if that doesn't happen, is it possible that Biden will say, okay, it's December. We, you know, we, we held court. We, 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 it, it's either a stalemate or, or the Democrats still hold, you know, enough of the government or both houses somehow. Um, we'll rip off the other part of the Band-Aid. And, or, or is it just, is it not even on the radar? Or do you know? It's, it's difficult. Like, obviously, it's very difficult to predict things because we don't know how the midterms will turn out. We don't know how, what the layout of the U.S. policies will look at the time. He may, you know, 
when you put Afghanistan was pretty much on Trump's timeline, but it was in that period of like it's far enough away from any election where it isn't the entire referendum on that decision. Uh, they may decide to, you know, come Decemberish, decide to relieve the sanctions and start, you know, helping Afghanistan get their, get their stuff back together. Uh, they may otherwise, you know, like Cuba, who they've kept sanctions on since what 60, 63 or late, something like that. Or it's, it's a long time. Yeah. Um, again, Caribbean is not my area of expertise. <laughs> yet. Uh, yeah. You know, they may keep it on forever and just use proxies to get stuff done. So they may, for instance, work with the Indian government who are very close with the Afghan government. Or they may work with the Pakistani government to get stuff into Afghanistan uh, and kind of be like, we're not going to give you money, but I'm going to give my friend in India a bunch of money and he'll invest it in Afghanistan and keep their hands clean and pretend they don't do anything. Strong countries. The US will give food aid to North Korea, uh, but make sure it goes through, you know, through China or through the UN or through someone else so they can keep their hands clean of it. Um, clean you know, Clean adjacent. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. that, that makes sense. Yeah, there, there, there's always politics to be involved in geopolitics. Well, um, let's let's take a guess. Let's just say the Democrats hold on to the Senate. Let's say they pick up two seats. So it's now 52-48 plus the vice president. Yeah. And let's just say they, they somehow hold on to the, the majority in the House. I, it doesn't matter what the number is. Uh, yeah. You know, so they, they still manage to control uh, both houses uh, of the Congress um, do you do you think it's on anyone's list to you know relieve the pressure on Afghanistan, meaning turn off the sanctions on this side, or you know what what would what would if you were a betting man would you say yes they will in those circumstances or nah probably not? I would say they would if if they manage to hold on to both you know, in both parts of the house, relieving the sanctions seems like a, a move to pull. Um, but long term dealing in the moment is really difficult. Uh, and obviously with the show, we're talking with diplomats and presidents and all sorts of people all the time. Uh, and a pretty universal thing we're hearing sort of diplomats in the Middle East at the moment is the, you know, hey, look, we're, we're pretty happy with the, the Biden administration. You know, we're, it's, it's going well. You know, we're happy to do deals. But uh, we're not going to do any deal that lasts more than two years with the U.S. Uh, because when Precad President, you know, Tucker Carlson comes in, in in 2024, we don't know what happens anymore. After the after the U.S. kind of tore up the Iran right, the Iran nuclear deal, all bets are off. No yeah. one kind of imagines that deals. Everyone kind of goes, "Oh well, you do a deal, it'll last as long as the Democrats do in power, and they'll get torn up, and we have to start again, even if we comply with everything." So it will make any doing any long term deals in Afghanistan quite difficult uh, because you will lose. You've lost a lot of trust in that area. Um, but again, I think they're also willing to take any 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 horse they can get at the moment. Sure. Whether that's China, whether that's India, whether that's Pakistan, whether that's you know Central Asia, whether it's Russia, uh, they'll pretty much take anyone's money at the moment because they're just dead. Again, we're talking budgets of five hundred million here, which is yeah. again what the Yankee. Water park it's the your Yankees. Mm-hmm. It's the Yankees' yeah. payroll. I mean, the Yankees yeah. are worth much yeah. more than that. It's the Yankees' payroll. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally the, you can either pay the New York Yankees for a year or pay the entire government budget of Afghanistan. Right, we're it, talking really small amounts here. Probably within a decade, that'll be that'll be the twelve-year contract for a power-hitting left left-handed uh, first baseman <laughs> or something. All right. So, wow, that that that's crazy. By the way, folks, if uh, if you can get me to even one million streams per month, I will tell my true Tucker Carlson story, and I'm not going to reveal <laughs> any more. So you think that it's really, really juicy, and maybe it is. So now there's some incentive for the world. Plus, the shows are pretty good. Um, all right. So. I think I have about 15 more minutes with you or so. Obviously, it's on yours. So 
three things that are happening in the world that probably most people are not paying attention to that they really should be aware of? Obviously, there's, you know, the big one is, is the war in Ukraine. Um, you know, I think everyone is paying attention, but people are starting to lose attention on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also this kind of, you know, there was a sort of impact of Ukraine and there was the peripheries that circled out from that. So when the food security went down, uh, you know, the bread prices are a pretty good indication of, of revolutions coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and immediately we saw destabilization in, in Kenya, in Algeria, in Egypt, uh, in Sudan, you know, immediately. And that's, you know, people just don't pay attention to that kind of outside flow-on effect. Uh, Lebanon's in, in chaos at the moment. Uh, effectively, they are... It's a system of government where they give certain... Imagine if you, you know... If, uh, I'm you a really good analogy. Imagine if you said, okay, uh, all trash will be done by this religion and all uh, it's like trash collection and municipal stuff and all you know, finances will be done by this religion and all, uh, you know, all defense will be done by this religion. Right. And what happens is rather than working together, they just kind of hoard all their resources and don't work to help anyone outside of the groups. So chaos in, in Lebanon at the moment. Uh, Central Asia is obviously you know, in flux at the moment because you know their big hegemon Russia is very busy elsewhere, uh, and China's got a lot of money going in, and everyone's kind of working out where that those chips fall. Europe is in the middle of a really tough political decision because right now, right now gas prices are at a record high in Europe, um, which this time of year not the case. This time of year it really should be quite low. You know, gas prices peak usually around December January. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that the winter's coming. Putin's just turned off Nord Stream, so the gas is going to be even shorter. So you're going to reach a point in around probably you know November December where a lot of Europe is going to go. Oh, I can't really afford anything, particularly when the first you know uh, economic reports come back. You know where people were hoping for a retail bump uh, that would help their economies get out of COVID. Uh, it won't be there because people, you know everyone is spending a lot of their disposable income on, on just heating. Uh, and energy production. So a lot of them will start to go, well, we really need to end the war in Ukraine because, you know, you'll have Putin at that point telling countries, particularly Slovakia, Bulgaria, uh, and Hungary, saying, you know, end the war and I can turn the gas on tomorrow. It's, yeah, it's really, it's a bit chaotic that, you know, Europe is going to be facing that. We're not really ready for that conversation to come up. Pakistan is having a huge crisis at the moment with their leader. Um, yeah, as well as in the south with the Baluch. Uh, Iran is, you know, having political instability, but also, you know, getting more ambitious. Mm-hmm. Um, Saudi Arabia's got lots of other problems internally at the moment. Uh, Indonesia's interesting. Uh, the South China Sea is obviously always going to be on people's minds. China's in economic uh, flux at the moment as well. It's very interesting to see some of the Chinese stuff working and some not, and it's really weird to see. Well, Xi right now is effectively going into the Congress in, in November. Now um, they have to become the big party Congress where by rules he should resign, mm-hmm. but they'll have to either make a decision to amend the rules to keep his presidency going another term, or what's quite likely is they elect him to chairman, which no one's been chairman since Mao, uh, which would effectively put Xi in place to be, that is who we're going to be dealing with for 20 years now. Right, Pharaoh. Uh, which, yeah. yeah. Uh, Australia just had a brand new government uh, that's changing a lot of the Pacific Ocean at the moment which is good um, Brazil, you know, we are already seeing pretty much everyone on the South American desks is preparing for Bolsonaro 
who will likely win the elections uh, to not leave. He's already started calling military chiefs and there's been a lot of money going to the right places um, to effectively try a coup, uh, to put a military dictatorship back into Brazil. So we're all preparing for that. Uh, yeah. Well, that's more than three. And <laughs> you know what? I'm going to throw you a curveball. What's good? Where, like, where, where is there a place where it's pretty good government, pretty stable, and most people seem to be happy, or they at least should be? Is is there any place like that that's not Canada, <laughs> or, or, or or does Canada even fit? Do, do they feel that way? No, again, there's lots of places actually doing really well at the moment. So Australia, for instance, has done. You know, we've have a, a brand new Labor government in place, and. They have not, the foreign minister in particular is knocked out of the park. She, you know, the, we had the election on Saturday and we had a, the quad conference in, in Tokyo on Monday. She left and I think she's been back once since, and that was in May. Um, she was doing so well, the Chinese and, you know, around the Pacific Islands, just, you know, making good relationships, funding the right things, you know, doing things like where China would just fund, you know, the mining oligarch and buy him a new plane. Australia is doing things like buying all the soccer team's jerseys for the local teams because that's actually going to be in front of a lot more people. Um, you know, to the point where China had to send their foreign minister, arguably the second or third most powerful person in China, to follow our foreign minister around the Pacific, you know, to actually just do damage control for how well she was doing. Um, you know, that's pretty insane that Australia is back in, back in as a major player in the Pacific, uh, which is very cool to see. You know, the US is, is doing you know, effectively some really good funding work. We've, you know, some of the, the Biden administration's sort of funding plans and rebuilding plans have been really well received in the Asian sphere. <laughs> because a lot of these countries are in this very weird position where if you're the Philippines or Indonesia or Vietnam and you really don't like China, you know, you have, until recently, you've had the US go, don't take Chinese money, it's bad, don't do it, don't do it. And you're kind of going, do you want to build a highway? Because I'm not going to your highway. Right. Rhetoric doesn't build highways. So they're going, oh, I don't like it, but I'll, I'll take the money. Now the US is actually willing to fund those highways. So, you know, we are seeing pretty good inroads in some of these countries uh, and some divulging, some businesses are starting to jump ship from China, which is, you know, a something that everyone's wanted for a long time, but, you know, we haven't seen. Uh, you know, I'm always made sort of a bit chuffed at how United Europe defense, European defense is. You know, European defense is for the first time in decades, actually working together. You know, it's been, uh, I, I that put a big caveat, that, you know, always relies on Ukraine being the way it is. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a good sign to see that, you know, if you ask the Spanish and the French and the Italians to agree on anything, I would have seen you more likely to, you know, uh, see a Frenchman move house, a Frenchman who lives next door to a brothel move house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's just, it's good to see. Um, so there is lots of positive stories throughout the world at the moment, uh, but yeah, obviously the our purview and most geopolitical guys, you know, the guys who are well behaved. I don't know many people who sit on the you know Slovenia desk mm -hmm. um, because no one's had to think about that in a while. Uh, but there's a lot of guys sitting on the Afghanistan desk and the Iraq desk and Central Asia desk and, and all these kind of like that. What's a success story that nobody knows is a success story? Success story that no one knows is a success story. Rwanda is actually a really good success story. Oh, that's uh, it's good. Got highest, represent, highest representation of females in parliament, fun fact, okay. um, anywhere in the world. Um, effectively, they have a, they are marketing themselves now as the Singapore of Africa. Um, <laughs> and it got sped up. 
Ethiopia was always seen as the where you put your organizations, where you put your money, where you put your African banks, where you put your peacekeeping organizations bases. Uh, but that's now in pretty nasty civil war. Yeah. So everyone's thinking, where do I put my stuff? And Rwanda's actually, after the, the horrifying genocide of the 90s, it's actually become very stable. Um, Kigali's doing really well. The government's really, really open to stuff. The banking's good. They're willing to use other countries' supreme courts, which gives a lot of people, you know, <laughs> effectively, if you have a dispute with, you know, banking or finance in that area, you can use the British courts quite often to actually make uh, make rules. And that gives international investors a lot more, you know, uh, peace of mind. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm going to get money in the Congo and I go, and the local guy goes, what money? I go, okay, I just lost that money. Whereas, you know, in, in Rwanda, okay, well, they'll actually, you know, my money's safe. <clears throat> and they're rolling out a lot of really good programs, particularly micro loans. You know, it's things like, you know, you and me wouldn't really think about it, but loaning someone $100 so they can actually get a, uh, some farming animal who can actually help them plow the fields, which means they can plant twice as many crops. Mm-hmm. To you and me, it's like, well, it's a hundred bucks. Who cares? You know, but to that, you know, to that give that loan and actually get that system going is something that really needs to be done. It makes huge impacts, but it's really difficult to administer because you have to, rather than, you know, uh, US banks who give out very, very large loans to a small amount of people, this would be tiny, tiny loans getting interest of like, you know, why would you go through all the administrating costs of, you know, checking up on them, keeping the names, checking the interest for like $150. Um, so yeah, they're actually tackling some of those micro loan, microfinance issues. So yeah, there are some good spots throughout the world. If there was a country I was looking at that people tend to forget, they're doing really well. Rwanda's probably in the top of my list. Okay, very good. All right, well, that was great. Tell the folks where they can find your show and how they can support and follow you. So you can find us on most of the major podcast platforms as well as YouTube on at the Red Line Pod, um, which you want to hear effectively geo, big, one big geopolitical topic each fortnight. Uh, we also do live panels on our Twitter, um, and we also do lots of articles and analysis. I know the last one we did <coughs> analysis-wise is on the gas industry in the Eastern Med and the competition between uh, Turkey, Cyprus, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, and Israel. Um, you know, our last panel was on. Gorbachev dying and effectively the difference in Russian politics between the end of Gorbachev and then today. You know, and our last episode was on the cyber war in Ukraine, uh, to which we had <coughs> lots of experts as well as the Brigadier General in charge of the Ukrainian cyber forces on. Yeah, you had four uh, so experts, had, not your usual three. Yeah, we had four. Uh, in fact, the next one's a, a four episode as well. Sometimes we, you know, we just have too many good guests. And we're like, well, I'm not going to cut one. I know the next one is, you know, the like two U.S. ambassadors, the head of U.S.'s uh, forces, uh, force in Syria, and oh, and an expert on, on you know, the Turkish internal politics and counterterrorism in Turkey. So, again, it's lots of experts and lots of smarter people than me talking uh, about geopolitics. Yeah, but you're gonna have to change the introduction to your show where it says we talk to three people because now it's now it's chaos. Now you unleash the force. Uh, I, I know, but that's. I thought about changing it, but obviously, you know, it's like well, there people might expect four. So I we keep it as we always say three in the intro, and then I give a little bonus guests at the end, uh, uh, in the episode occasionally. I see. I don't know. You're getting very close to a, your own rock and a hard place. I see. I, I, <laughs> this is high stakes here. Yeah. The number of guests. I'm pretty soon it's going to be a handful. Then it's going to be two handfuls. Then it's going to be yeah. a human hand, or a, you know, what other kind of a millipede's hand? You know. So anyway. Alternative titles of the show. We, we, if we get rid of the red line, we'll either call it 
reasonable drinks every fortnight, uh, mm-hmm. or we'll call it uh, 90 minutes to end up at a, oh shit, uh, either side is bad, I don't know what to do. It's kind of a, you're screwed either way with backing music. <laughs> well, how about just Michael Can Count, uh, sponsored by Sesame Street? Yeah, that's fair. That's, that's a very fair assumption. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, very good. Well, you're going to, luckily for you, you have an infant, so you're going to hear a lot of, you're going to learn about counting again. So that that's great. And you'll make that very hard and important decision about more than three guests going forward. Uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, obviously I listened because I knew that there were four guests. It's not like I'm just looking I'm at the titles I'm of your very, shows. I'm very impressed. I'm very impressed. So, uh, yeah, no, it was a. Yeah, occasionally we do a fourth one, but only when you know there's it's we want a particular angle or you know uh, yeah, it does need a fourth guest because we need a particular question to be answered. Okay, well, very good. All right, well, other guests out there, if I tell you I subscribe and listen to your show, chances are you got me for life. I mean, I usually last longer than most of your shows do. Uh, I don't mean you, Michael. <laughs> I mean uh, generally out there. So. Uh, no, I'm a, I'm a pretty loyal supporter. So anyway, uh, it's a great show. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time so early in the morning. Obviously, you do important work. And while the show isn't always important, this one is more important. Maybe it's important depending on, you know, what your views are on Bigfoots or, you know, uh, you know, or the Anunnaki or, you know, things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, again, thank you for joining us and, and enlightening us and having a bit of a you know, uh, not an off-color, but, a, you know, a semi-unorthodox show for uh, hours. And uh, I don't know, I'm trying to decide what kind of song to use as the outro. I, I, I was thinking of the R.E.M., It's the End of the World, but I don't know. It seems a little glum. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I think that's, you know, upbeat, uh, you know, upbeat backing track with glum actual tones. Sounds like a perfect representation of who I am as a person. <laughs> okay, there it is. And then sold, sold and sold. And uh, we don't own the uh, rights to the music to that song, which means absolutely nothing, which you will learn about on Garden View's uh, Intellectual Property Law Continued, uh, which is a, a sister show to this one. So, all right. So you, you gave them your socials and where the show is. Check out the Red Line podcast. I subscribe. I suggest you subscribe with without even sampling it. You're, you're, it will not be a mistake. Thank you so much. Enjoy your baby. Thank you for doing your good work. And know that I'm listening. And at some point, I'm going to hit you up with something else that fits within your ballywick. And hopefully the timing will be good again. And you'll still remember the little guy. So anytime you, uh, you know, my, my, uh, my Twitter, so just hit me up and we'll make it work. You the man. All right. Thank you so much. Continued success. Nobody deserves more. Thanks so much. I come from a long, long line of denim jean. Cut beside our types of fiends. I robbed the DEA in overdose. Spend the cash on guns and coke. I am the warmonger, more crazy strong. Dropping drones inside Iran. I'm the big, bad, supercharged sex machine. All-American, extra lean.